Hi there, thanks for downloading the Fantasy Animation Podcast. If you enjoy these podcasts and like to see it happen live in front of your very faces, then please do come along to the Cinema Museum screening series that we're holding at the Cinema Museum in Kennington in London. We'll be running screening events throughout November, January, February and March, and they'll be on the last Friday of every month. Each screening will be followed by a live Q&A, so look forward to things like Shrek, Yellow Submarine, The Dark Crystal and all other kinds of fancy animations coming your way. You can find tickets at cinemamuseum.org.uk and they're priced at the very reasonable £6. But for now, enjoy the show. Hello everybody and welcome to the brand new buffed and shiny episode of the Fantasy Animation Podcast with me Chris Holiday and me Alex Sargent. So for this instalment we are perhaps for the first time going over something of old ground, revisiting American animator Ray Harryhausen's film uh, The Valley of Guanji, a 1969 American western fantasy film uh, directed by Jim O'Connolly but with visual effects um, by Harryhausen. Uh, in short, I, and I'm sure Alex is the same, don't know quite what to make of this film, which I guess is, is what the next hour or so is all about. Oh yes, I have no idea what I'm about to say, but I'm looking forward to it. Yes, um, so joining Alex and I this time round, and to take sole responsibility for this <laughs> choice of film, uh, is animation director Astrid Goldsmith, better known as Mock Duck Studios, uh, which was set up by Astrid in 2012 after a decade uh, of industry experience as a model maker for both film and TV. Now, I could spend a long time listing um, Astrid's achievements. She's worked for clients Duracell, Ford Fiesta and Nike. Um, her debut short film Squirrel Island from 2016 um, has been uh, premiered premiering at several international film festivals and won several prizes for best film and more recently in 2018 she was selected for the prestigious BFI uh, BBC4 animation 2018 talent scheme. Um, her subsequent film commission film Quarantine had its premiere at the BFI South Bank in November as part of the BFI's animation 2018 year and was broadcast uh, on BBC4 in December um, so a few months ago. Uh, Astrid thank you very much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. Um, so, so yeah, it's a real, real thrill to, to have you on one because you're wearing a Clash of the Titans T-shirt. Um, so I know that you're a Harryhausen fan, but also when we uh, posited this idea of you coming on and talking about um, an animated film or an animation television program, something that maybe inspired you, something that you were perhaps influenced by, um, interested in, you immediately came up with uh, this film, The Valley of Guanji. So, and I was immediately impressed by the levels of uh, Harryhausen knowledge. This is proper sort of second division. Um, this is this is Harryhausen for the purists. So yeah. well, well chosen. Fine. So I I didn't know and still don't quite know what the film is, was, and could be. <laughs> However, um, reading up around it, I'd never heard of the film. I read up a little bit about it. Um, Harryhausen's final dinosaur film. So I guess my first my first question to you, our first in, if you like, for this episode is: What is it about this film? Where are you kind of coming to from this film? Is this something that you um, know and love? Uh, where, wh- what does Guanji mean to you? Uh, so it's probably, uh, it's definitely in my top three favourite Harryhausen films. Um, he is a big influence on me as an animator um, and as a big fan of uh, monster movies in general. Um, yeah. yeah, he's always been kind of the big one. But um, <laughs> I first found out about Guanji actually from 
Ray Harryhausen himself. Uh, when I, can't I, believe, <laughs> I can't believe you dropped that in two minutes into the podcast. Unbelievable. It's literally... Right, what, what did he say then? <laughs> literally my only name drop. Excellent. <laughs> what, um, a, what a noise that drop made. Um, so I went to see him talk um, about a year before he died. And um, he was talking about Guanji. He was actually... He told this lovely anecdote about going to Harrods um, in the 70s with his little daughter, Vanessa, um, and she was pushing a pram, um, and she obviously looked really adorable. And these two old women came up to her and were saying, oh, what a lovely small child, and uh, let's see what you've got in your pram. And she pulled back the covers, and there was the model of Guanji, this kind of <laughs> terrifying dinosaur, and they recoiled in horror. Um, and so, you know, from that anecdote, I thought, I'd already seen a lot of Harryhausen films, but I thought I really have to check this out. Yeah. Um, it's funny that we think of it as a Harryhausen movie. I was very careful, I think, in the introduction. You know, I said it's a Harryhausen, um, you know, uh, we are revisiting American animator Harryhausen's film, but obviously he didn't direct it. Jim, Jim O'Connolly directed it, but, you know, his stamp is, or there's very much a Harryhausen look, style, aesthetic that plays across a lot of lot of his films. Obviously, we've done Argonauts, Jason the Argonauts previously. Um, but, yeah, it's interesting we, we sort of refer to it as a Harryhausen film, such as the impact and the sort of um, influence of his work on you as well. Yeah, well, I think they all of the ideas originate from him, and there are a few uh, films in his canon where he's kind of more like an animator for hire um, or a kind of model maker animator for hire. Um, but m most of them, and particularly Guanji, uh, the the idea originated from his mentor um, Willis O'Brien, and um, and then he kind of really took it on. And I think. I don't know too much about the director, but probably a director for hire. It's Harryhausen and Charles Schneer, the producer, with the kind of, you know, the driving forces behind the film. Yeah, no, I think from my own research into the sort of production history, and correct me if I'm wrong, either of you, is, is that he would actually often sort of direct the live action sequences that involved the animation stuff without being credited. And as you say, sort of, um, you know, not necessarily come up with the screenplay, but come up with a basic structure for this for the story based on the monsters he think he could make and things for the for the plot so absolutely a creative force kind of behind the scenes and in front of the camera as well yeah and did lots of concept art um for um key moments throughout the film not just for the um creature effects and storyboarded and yeah so it had a, a massive impact and you mentioned willis o'brien so willis o'brien as as harry house's mentor um o'brien and, and obviously i think certainly for this podcast O'Brien's work on The Lost World, uh, the original King Kong, um, Mighty Joe Young, these sorts of monster movies. Mm. Um, and uh, yeah, re again, reading up about the film, the, was it right that Harryhausen took on, the, I can't remember when Willis O'Brien died, but Harryhausen took it on yeah, from him and sort of took up the reins, but ultimately it was one of Harryhausen's last sort of dinosaur, is that right, kind of his dinosaur movies. There's a lot of literature written on Harryhausen's dinosaur work, and we've talked, I think, you know, previously about the role of skeletons and in animation, and dinosaurs are obviously a thing that crop up a lot. We could, um, we could rename this podcast Skeletons and Dinosaurs and, and Bears, oh my. Um, and fantasy, and, and, and a bit yeah, of fantasy. Um, because they do come up a lot, don't they? Um, yeah, so this was, um, so Willis O'Brien had many unrealised uh, dinosaur movies. Um, Guanji was just one of them. He wrote the script in 1942 and Harryhausen took it on um, following on from their success from uh, One Million Years BC in 66. Um, they wanted to do another project and so he yeah, kind of re updated the Guanji script and turned it into Valley of Guanji. So this is a really important movie 
I feel a bit ashamed that I don't know my I don't know much about Harry House, and I must I must admit it's, stop it's motion. One stop motion generation passing on to the next. Yeah, it sounds like continuing to sort of pass on that legacy. In many ways, this is the AI of of stop motion dinosaur based creature features. I mean, in the sense you've got sort of one master passing on to the other kind of things. <laughs> Well, yeah, and also... I mean, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm, I'm not having anything to do with that analogy. Okay, but, um, sure. sure. <laughs> um, but well, thanks, but everyone. That was great. Uh, <laughs> Alex souring the tone. Um, so, I mean, I, I guess the, it's connection, and I feel like this happens, This, this I say the sentence a lot, but obviously the anima- uh, connection um, to animation is clear. Harry Houser's final dinosaur film, he inherits this project from um, Willis O'Brien, and yet... The description of it is a is a Western fantasy. So in terms of fantasy, fantasy, I've got lots of notes about the Western as a genre, but I'm just interested, I guess, in... I guess I'm just interested in where you're coming to as a... I mean, fantasy didn't necessarily jump out at me in the way it's jumped out at me at other films that we've studied and looked at. Um, what, the, the film about the bunch of cowboys running around in the in the Valley of the Dinosaurs? Yeah. Didn't strike you yeah, yeah. fantastic. So what was the fantasy in there? Um, so, was it yes. some of the dubbing? Yeah, I've got, I've, got, I've got Wild West as fantasy written in my notes. And okay. I, think, I think we could have a broader conversation... And it seems like we're having it right now about sort of the, the thorny relationship between westerns and fantasy literature and that westerns actually as a popular genre grew out of exactly the same sort of um, pulp storytelling sources as fantasy so early if you if you engage with sort of um, histories of fantasy people like Brian Atterbury write about sort of the adventure uh, romance as being sort of both a prototypical example of fantasy um, and a prototypical example of the western so I'm talking about things like um, James Fenimore Cooper's you know uh, Last of the Mohicans things like that um, so actually and early pulp, pulp westerns were published in exactly the same magazines and graphic comics as fantasy stories so actually it's not so much that this is a western and therefore not a fantasy it is um, a fantasy because it is a western and that westerns one could argue is a certain kind of fantasy storytelling invested in notions of Americana why they decided to blend yeah. that with with dinosaurs is another question. I don't know if, if Astrid, you know anything about the history of this. Um, um, well, not specifically. God bless them for it. Not <laughs> not specifically, but I think if you look at um, Willis O'Brien's unrealized dinosaur films, uh-huh. I think that that kind of becomes clear. So, um, for example. Creation, 1930, about castaways marooned on an island inhabited by dinosaurs. War Eagles, 1939, about a lost world inhabited by dinosaurs in the Antarctic. Valley of the Mist, about a lost valley. Guanji, about, you know, it's just the next logical step, isn't it? Oh, uh, what happened? Uh, cowboys, let's see if that We've will work. We've had a work. valley that's lost, let's have it forbidden now. <laughs> um, okay. Yeah, and I think that actually it's just trying to package dinosaurs with other popular um, genres in the 40s. That made sense. You know, Westerns were huge then. And it just doesn't make so much sense in the late 60s where, you know, in the middle of the space race, in the middle of the countercultural revolution, to, you know, post-Hays Code, to then suddenly kind of reintroduce cowboys and the film bombed and that's you know probably yeah. why i mean actually we were talking about this yeah. after watching it and that it doesn't make sense and yet it does make sense and that i did exactly what you're describing i think is that about 20 minutes into the movie i went so when did this come out this must have been like mid 50s kind of thing <laughs> and then googled it and realized 69 is much later than i thought but at the same time i guess 
in the context of the 60s, you can see someone commissioning this in that it's an attempt to re-energise two things that are waning, which is the monster movie and the Western, right? So, okay, we'll put them both together and they might actually work. Um, sadly, not so much, or, or, or not so much both... Hmm. I want to get on if this is a good film or not. It's certainly an entertaining movie, but it's it certainly has some sort of structural and and uh, some issues, we should say. But it, but in a way that does make sense as a, as a commercial decision, but um, not paid off. Well, that's what I mean, I mean, just to just to very quickly jump in, we were, yeah we were talking about the stability of the western as a genre, and I like this idea, Astrid, about packaging, like using the the western as this relatively stable genre, albeit one that had waned by the time. The, the film comes around comes out in the, the late 1960s uh, using the stability and the structures of the of a genre that is recognizable um, to then attach to it something like fantasy I mean of course the western has been many things before and since it was a musical in you know Oklahoma but it's it's been a science fiction film with back to the future part three probably the best western um, <laughs> but there's something interesting I think about its relationship to fantasy and hopefully we can kind of tease out perhaps the film's relationship or what it does with the relationship between the Western and the fantasy is given that we've discussed in previous episodes about fantasy as a mode, medium, impulse, genre, whatever it might be, what happens when it is connected to something that is so rigid and recognisable as a Western? Does that fundamentally create it or, or I don't want to say relegate but does that create a hierarchy between it's a western first and a fantasy second or is it a fantasy western or what I, I'm interested to, to, to figure out what happens when those two things play off and against each well, other well, well uh, just to complicate that further I think what I would be keen to say is that it's it's actually not an either or the, a western is a, it's a slash a western is a fantasy and what you've got here is a, a film that blends one kind of fantasy that is perhaps mo more covert in that it's sort of a reimagining of American history with another kind of fantasy that's much more explicit and then what it does with that to both normalise things that are definitely fantastical like the representation of all cultures and chitons of people in this movie with other kind of things that are more explicitly fantastical like giant monsters. It's almost to me like the giant monsters help to solidify um, a more stable world that is equally fantastical and odd and strange and all this kind of stuff. We talked, I remember when we did Mary Poppins about the world of Mary Poppins looking um, like it's not pretending to be Victorian England. I would argue this film is is kind of pretending to be a version of, I don't know, front la frontier America, Mexico. Yeah. Um, with all the problems that is in terms of its extremely nuanced representation of gypsy culture, uh, Mexican culture, and culture. It's sensitive, um, and I think yeah, that's the well, most important yeah. thing. I think, I think um, the, uh, that's introduced right at the beginning of the film with that title, somewhere south of the Rio Grande at the turn of the century. Mm -hmm. I mean, you could not get less specific than that. It's literally just like, uh, this is somewhere other yeah. slash Mexico. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so it may as well be a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. olden times, yeah, yeah. <laughs> absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, let's, um, let's begin at the beginning. So the film, yeah, it's a Western, it's a Western fantasy, and I think that that plays out in the first five minutes. With a James Bond pre-title sequence. It has a pre-title sequence, uh, of course. I, I mean, I should say this idea of kind of hybridity anyway and genre hybridity, I think there's obviously a tendency within, I don't know, maybe not a tendency, or is a, there's certainly it's up for discussion in regards to scholarship on new Hollywood, contemporary Hollywood, post-classical Hollywood, that genre hybridity is a post-classical phenomenon, when actually you know, genres have always been porous and fluid and things like this. So, apart, of course, from when there are genre parodies and they're quite stable. This is, 
this is a sort of Western fantasy where those two constituent parts, I think, kind of come together, both in the pre-title sequence. And then when we watched it, Alex, I mentioned to you about the, t the, the, the titles themselves. So you have a pre-title sequence, um, a Bond-esque pre-title sequence that sets up Guanji and the curse that may or may not be attached. Um, but the, the, the film or the sequence takes place kind of outside. The film uses landscapes tremendously well, actually. Um, the landscape both giveth and taketh away, as I wrote down at later points. Um, then you have these kind of weird psychedelic, in some ways, titles that then shift to what looked like kind of part Reiniger silhouettes, but also pages from a fantasy book. Like they're drawings of monsters, well actually drawings of claws and feet and, and legs and things like that. So I really like that juxtaposition in the first three, four, five minutes where you have frontier landscape, which is Western par excellence, into the upturn, and I feel like the fantasy then, it destabilizes even at the level of structure you know, the title sequence destabilizes what's gone before, which is it's playing out fantasy as this sort of force, I guess. Um, but I quite like that shift that the film undertakes between the prominence of the Western at the front, but then that Western sort of jostles for prominence with pages from a fantasy novel. Yeah, it's almost promising what's to come, right? And that we yeah. haven't seen the monsters at this point. So what we get, the first introduction of the monsters are pictures of them, um, colored in, psychedelic, as you say, almost illustrations um, of the monsters, and it sort of teases what's then quite a lengthy opening act, which I should have, before we start recording, you were apologising for, because it? it does have quite a lengthy sort of, what, 45, 50-minute bit before we get to the monsters where we meet our heroes. Yeah, yeah, and I think the title sequence is interesting because the you've got those the pictures of the claws and the dinosaur scales, um, but you've got this soundtrack of, you know, Mexican brass, like classic... <laughs> Kind of yeah. magni magnificent seven Western theme playing, and so yeah, it's a it's a weird um, tone and atmosphere. Yeah, that kind of split between what you see and what you hear. There's a uh, but I quite like that. I quite like that friction, and it doesn't really settle you into any kind of viewing experience that you're really. I don't know. I, I, I do like that as a sort of this is. So does that mean then that the, the fantasy is qualifying the Western, the Western is qualifying the fantasy? You mentioned it about stabil the Western stabilises fantasy, fantasy stabilises the Western. Well, I would argue the fantasy is yeah. stabilising the Western in that respect, in that the fantastical thing is set up in those title sequences as the creatures that will follow, um, which, which sets up the start, with, back to our intrusive, inclusive, uh, immersive and fantabidosive uh, versions of fantasy. But um, this is a, a, a reality in which fantasy is threatening to intrude upon and we're waiting for that intrusion. But that reality is bizarre and full of caricature gypsy women who are blind and... But, and yet um, they can see. And yet they can see. <laughs> Crucially. Um, and circus performers and um, all kinds of other kind of but, it, but it's interesting that, that right, so following that opening sequence and these sorts of, these drawings of, of fantasy creatures that are themselves truncated and occluded and we can't quite see them similarly, we, you know, we don't see them for quite some time. So the first act becomes pretty much half an hour worth of setting the characters up, but, but we begin, isn't it, we begin on a, in a, a rodeo, so we actually, we begin when we follow the protagonist who couldn't have more of an American name if he tried, Tuck Kirby. Um, <laughs> who, who I thought was called Jack Kirby yeah. throughout the entire movie <laughs> yeah. until those sort of roll call credits at the end where it said, but Tuck Kirby yeah. is And brilliant. I think it's your attention to detail that impresses me most. <laughs> um, so he's, a, he's an American, an all-American hero. Like a, um, uh, he comes into the world of the, of, of the film. 
he comes into the world of the film. He's a former stuntman, um, and he sort of reignites his relationship with a rodeo um, owner, TJ Breckenridge, um, which will form the romantic crux, the heart of the movie. What I quite liked was that it began on the rodeo, so it began with like the performance of... Oh, I, I was thinking this, and I don't know whether it's right, but it felt like the performance of a Western. So the film is coming at the end, as you said, Astrid, at the start, at the end of a, of a period where the... the golden age of the western if you like 50s maybe early 60s is waning and so now we're getting a performance like it's a period piece it's filmed in 68 69 but it's set at the turn of the 20th century and yet there's a sense that it's performing the role of a western and and so i quite like that yeah, use of the rodeo to, to dwindling audiences yeah. you know so it's a comment on actually what the state of the western it's a yeah a performance within the arena i mean this is the first of what i have said of four arenas of the film and so that yeah that circus arena is the first one and it's like you know they they it's a pretty sorry state of affairs the the whole you know the parade they've got a 6 foot elephant so is that a comment on so that that the sort of dwindling fortunes of the rodeo in the film yeah for you that's a sort of comment on potentially a comment on the way that the western as a genre filmically cinematically is, is yeah, like that, received? that they need something more to yeah. add to the Western to kind of engage with new audiences to you know further the, their fortunes. So yeah, I, I see, I'd say I think that this film, in a lot of ways, the content and the context kind of mirror each other, and that's yeah, the kind of one of the ways. Oh, so I'm probably going to have to put a pound in the swear jar because I'm probably going to say something now about like how it's about. Storytelling uh, and spectacle, um, which is something we avoid doing, but it, I can't help like do it when you've got this sort of opening act where you've got these these circus performers pretending to be cowboys doing these stunt shows, to, as you say, to the winding audiences in a film that has acknowledged in the opening five minutes that this is a movie that's going to interject some dinosaurs into a western. So absolutely, it's this folding together of what the film is and what the film's about at the same time. So, um, yeah. So the film, I think, sets up its, I guess, half... I mean, we're gonna, we'll hopefully come back to this, these arenas. I love, I love this. Someone's come prepared. This is yeah, wonderful. The four arenas. The four arenas. Are the other three in the valley, or is there any more? No, in? no. Oh, don't spoil it. Sprinkled without the film. Okay. Ah, okay. Um, so the film sets up, after this opening radio sequence, that... I guess identifies um, both Tuck as quote unquote protagonist, but also his relationship um, to the uh, rodeo owner and their previous romantic relationship. Mm -hmm. He also then meets a, a, a young boy, um, Lope, if that's his. Or Lope. Uh, or Lope. As or everyone Lope. calls him. Lope. Um, <laughs> or, or Chico, as the professor yes, refers to him true. later. Um, Bromley. So, and then, uh, of course, of all the characters we meet, the first one is, or one of the most important, is Omar the Wonder Horse. Um, now that is the film's first effect sequence actually because it's a small a brief sequence so this is when TJ is we're in the rodeo this is the first arena if you like um, and we are seeing the film's first effect sequence which is TJ sitting atop Omar the Wonder Horse and they are jumping over into a pool of water yeah. which is just a normal burning a, a burning, burning sorry um, a burning pool and that is the first effect sequence but it's not even a sequence I guess it's just a very brief shot of, of um, the, the horse and a, a model of a horse and a, and a um, TJ a model of TJ jump, uh, sitting on top um, and then I feel like there's a dramatic sort of shift and suddenly we're discovering a fossilised tibia like I feel like that's the so are we now in the second arena no no not yet okay right we're still in <laughs> arena one um, I'm desperate to find out where so the second arena is um, <laughs> fancy animation the search for the second arena um, yeah. but, but can I ask a, a, like a broad question that I, I like what is this opening act doing 
because I don't. Th- I think. I like, don't know. Like, <laughs> but I think like you want to be generous and go. Oh, great! It's all character based. Like they're giving us that time that we always sort of lament in in, in contemporary Hollywood that it never gives you the time to sort of let the characters be and become authentic and become real before you start throwing them into those spectacular situations. Except the characters are none of those things. Um, okay. Ooh, oh, 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 okay. Astrid's uh, uh, going I, to disagree. I mean, yes, James Franciscus is a poor man's child in Heston, but they're both him and Gina Golan are incredibly attractive, charismatic yeah, actors, yeah, yeah. even though Gina Golan was entirely dubbed. Yeah, um, yeah, but and, and the good thing is that you can't tell. <laughs> this film is aggressively dubbed. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I, I, I think that actually their relationship is interesting and nuanced and. They are exciting to watch, and I th- and and also she's an interesting heroine. You know, she's not a damsel in distress. She's a stunt woman go with a with a kind yeah. of taste for danger. Um, um, go on. And, <laughs> and I I don't know. I think that actually that opening act sets all of those relationships up really well, and. There is enough, I mean, yeah, I mean, so obviously some of it is cliched and hackneyed and, you know, we've seen it all before, but I think there is enough interest there to sustain. Okay, I'll rephrase my question trying not to add value judgments to it then, because that might be true. The film can work on different, but I think there is a certain issue where that it sets up quite a complex set of relationships where you've got, you've got, is it, it was TJ and Tuck, they're former lovers, they were sort of going to become... They were going to get married, and then he left. She's now with some other... Who's she? Carlos, is it? Carlos. They are not together. No, not, but it's sort of hinted at that there's a sort of... He wants he yes. wants a relationship. She definitely does So there's a love triangle, kind of yeah. Midsummer Nice Dream-esque going on there. You've got um, all this kind of odds, nuanced, complex relationships going on that after about 50 minutes, the film d- doesn't really care about anymore. And the ending is very interesting. And the ending is, oh, the monster's dead. That's that done. And you're sort of waiting for that final act where all the stuff like gets tied up. Are they going to go to the ranch in Wyoming? Are they going to... Well, know? I think that's th- probably the most interesting thing about the film. The ending is actually very, you know, ambiguous. I don't know what it means. And I think that that's the reason why I keep coming back to this yeah. film is because it doesn't answer the questions and it is quite downbeat and weird. And you don't get that final kind of, yeah, moment of celebration. So... Yeah, I don't know. I think it's it's like, it's, it's like the, we talk about false endings in like fifties melodramas, where like the film just stops, um, and you're like, hang on, that doesn't resolve anything. But like similar thing, except the dinosaur's dead, so at least that's resolved. Yeah, and I think, but I think it lingers in your memory and it asks questions. Yeah. I think it's yeah, I think it's interesting, and I think that actually that's not really fair because I think at the midpoint when they have when TJ and Tuck have that conversation about the ranch in Wyoming. I think that's a really crucial, you know, pivot point in their relationship. I think actually all the way through the film is developing their relationship and that's interesting. It's an interesting human relationship in a monster movie. Okay. Yeah, yeah no, right. I, I think that's right. It's, it, because it's the human or the human relationships are positioned to exist on one level and it's the dinosaurs that are this kind of underlying evil somehow preserved that threaten to destabilize uh, yeah i think you're at this sort of set of relationships that is is kind of getting stronger and they have um kind of conflict and their relationship with bromley i think is really really interesting because he's set up as this ally and then sort of isn't quite an ally and no and he's an antagonist yeah he's like a weird comedy antagonist he, he also looks a lot like attenborough in jurassic park like there's a sort of like interesting 
we'll get to I, Jurassic I, I could bore people by how many things like that you want spots, but like there's definitely the influences of this film on on Spielberg and Lucas are are, are writ large. I would yeah. suggest. So we have these dinosaurs that at this point, so half an hour in, we have these human relationships set up. The dinosaurs haven't been established and actually what the the film is up to that point really about uh, is this small stop motion miniature animated horse yeah that would just dro- you just drop that sentence in for listeners without any so, yeah. so like much like the film oh of course the next half an hour of this movie is going to be at a small horse yeah. and its relationship <laughs> yeah. to all the characters yeah so it's it's set up as this greatest scientific discovery of the age and what I do like about uh, the, the film is that a lot of the obviously you get a lot of surrogate spectators and, and everything like this but all the effect sequences are commented on often by characters about how brilliant and how fantastic and how wonderful and how they could make money out of all these things there's something there is something really interesting going on um, and hopefully we'll we'll have time to link it to the greatest showman but we'll <laughs> to that. Um, so yeah we have this stop motion and I'll say it again a stop motion animated miniature horse um, and I'd like to interject there please do uh, by introducing the second arena wonderful second arena which is take it away uh, which is the um, tiny horse El Diablo he has a, a kind of small um, I don't know what you call it a, an enclosure and a stable um, which is which is probably one of the only kind of true reflections of a stop motion model animation set. It's probably about the same size as the the real horse and the real set is in real life um, on a tabletop with the with the actors there looking almost like the animator. Um, And he, you know, so the Eohippus or Dawn Horse or El Diablo, many names. Uh, yeah, tiny Horse. Tiny, tiny Horse. Tiny. Stop motion animated Stop. miniature horse. <laughs> Trots out into, you know, his own arena. Um, and then, you know, an alternative arena for him is suggested on the back of Omar the Wonder Horse. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, and I, th- I just think that that part is, is really interesting. I think that the, um, in nearly all of uh, the other Harryhausen movies, all of the other creatures are much much bigger than they are in real life you know because most stop motion models are kind of 13 inches um 12 inches um and you know and then through the wonder of dynamation process you get these kind of you know 14 foot dinosaurs but the eohippus the tiny horse uh, is yeah it's probably kind of pretty close to life size It's now that time of the show where we pause for a second and talk about blog posts. What are blog posts? Blog posts are available on fantasy-animation.org every week. A special guest contributor writes one, and it can be about all kinds of things um, relating to the worlds of fantasy and animation. If you're an academic, maybe a screenwriter, maybe a practitioner or an artist, a curator, member of a fan organisation, animation director, or anyone with a vested interest in where fantasy and animation might meet, we would love to hear from you. If you're trying to promote some of your work and would like to write a creative reflection on how you were inspired to produce your work of animation, we're here to help. If you're an early career researcher who's looked like to, who would like to get some publication experience and some editorial advice on their work, we're here to help. Blog posts can take many forms. They can be a short editorial or opinion piece, maybe a sequence analysis where it's your chance to get obsessive, pick a short clip from any example of fantasy and animation and analyse the relationship between the two media, mediums and genres. If you've read a book, seen a television programme or film, we'd love to hear from you. We want reviews. These are traditional reviews but with a twist. If you've been to an event, a conference or even a film festival and planning to take part in any of the above, do get in touch. Fantasy-animation.org
But for now, let's get back to the show. So I guess we should just kind of qualify where this miniature horse comes from. So this is a horse that's been found. I'd be thrilled if we spent the next hour just talking about the miniature horse, to be honest. <laughs> bonus. Yeah. We'll do that as a bonus app. Um, so the, the, the horse has been discovered in the Forbidden Valley. And it's an indication, I think, that the horse is an indication that something untoward is, is happening within that, that, land, that landscape. I was thinking about kind of folklore and the haunting of landscapes. And I was wondering whether there's anything... I was wondering whether there's anything interesting about that, how the film... Because I do think landscape... I'm not going to be the person that says landscape is like a character because that's, that's impossible. And we need to find another word that isn't the word character to explain what landscapes do in movies that aren't like characters. And I, so, there's, so I think there's something interesting about what the landscape does within the context of the film as a Western and then also as a fantasy. And also in terms of the movement design and creature design, because I think there's a lot of... We talked on the last episode um, when we were talking about pirates about uh, about animation performance almost like being a dance with a camera. I would say we could extend that even further and say there's a lot of scenes in this movie that felt like Harryhausen's having to sort of dance or or, or play with the space of the film of the live action footage because there's lots of sequences right where where creatures sort of emerge out of mountains, go round mountains, and actually on one level it's very. Uh, very admirable and actually one of the pleasures of the film is like okay how is he going to use this shot of a of a valley and do something with it and animate into it because the footage is pre-existing other sequences like are, for example that the final sequence where the the t-rex goes loose it seems to be a different size each um each sort of sequence because at one moment you can run through a uh, a door that's like at one uh, the, the minute ago only went up to his waist, and then he can climb over these <laughs> things. So there's a whole thing about like using the space that that, that the camera has given you and animating on top of it. That I think is is what's kind of miraculous about the the creature. It's not even the creature's design, the creature movement, I guess that that I actually did pick up on. So maybe we could say that that the fantasy effect of those sequences is to almost like folklore haunt or or make spiritual or make fantastical these mm. filmed locations that otherwise would just look like a sort of a western yes yes i mean i well <laughs> i think because my next point was going to actually be about location and landscape and how obviously you have a lot of location shots of the wild west the the you know these vast panoramas of, of open space mm. um and then you have this miniature horse that's presumably animated in stop motion and then superimposed via some sort of back projection or Astra's nodding so I'm going to just go with the animator on this one um, kind of back projection and they're put into the landscape um, and so there's I don't know I, my, I guess my next point is about the western genre whether it's then being is that a moment where the western genre is being subordinated by fantasy just, just to play with that let some academics sort of speculate wildly and then you tell us why we're wrong Astrid but um I also thought maybe there were some sequences where like the landscape is made to look like the valley is bigger than it actually is because um, the creature is assumed to be gigantic when actually in that shot it wouldn't be that big because the, the crater isn't as big as it looks and things like that. So there's almost a, a way in which putting a creature in the shot makes the shot more hyperbolic or make more fantastical or bigger than it was. I don't think so. I think no? it was all shot on location in Spain with okay. some big rocks, but I don't I'm I don't know about that, but I'm I'm pretty sure that is the case. And I think that um once all of the live action's been done, yeah, like Chris was saying, it's just um yeah, rear projected and uh the and then animated on top of. Um 
I don't think the scale was played around with that much in terms of, um, especially in the valley, um, in terms of the size of the dinosaurs. Um, I mean, particularly in the, um, I mean, I don't, we haven't got to it yet, but the... You're going to say the third arena, aren't you? Uh, well, I, am oh, okay. <laughs> I wasn't going to say, yes, but in the third arena, yeah. in the valley, um, the kind of most famous sequence of the film when they rope the Allosaurus, the, when they rope Grangy, um, you know, that they had a monster stick on a jeep um, so that it was a constant height um, so, that they, so that the cowboys knew where to um, lasso the ropes. I'm, I'm pretty sure that um, in those sequences, Harryhausen was trying to be kind of as faithful as possible to all of the scales that had been, um, you know, established. Yeah. But what it does is it, is it highlights, exaggerates, punctuates these impressive looking locations. So if we go back to this idea of fantasy sort of re-energizing or re-stabilizing the Western, one of the, the key uh, the one of the key pleasures of the Western has been sort of the visual spectacle of the frontier imagery. And this film has that, but quite often that spectacle is punctuated by the spectacle of of a dinosaur kind of emerging out and interacting with this location. So the dinosaur makes is spectacular as a creature to look at, but makes the space that was already spectacular re-spectacular. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm gonna stop now. When you said the word re-spectacular out loud, it's time to pause the sentence and let other people Well, speak. I suppose just just playing with that, the the what does the Western as a genre give fantasy? And the background is obviously one of the key things because the background allows well it plays with the emphasis of discovery and I felt like a lot of uh, fantasy movies are rooted in narratives of discovery. So the land we discover and conquer land. Um, certainly, in the case of, of uh, the, a genre that, well, I'm thinking of westerns, Red River, River of No Return, Searchers. This is this is landscape country. You know, this is wild territory that needs to be um, kind of conquered. So you have the emphasis on discovery. You also have obviously the landscape as unknowable and, and as this this wilderness. But it also allows, I think, within the context of, of fantasy for, as we said earlier, things to be hidden and viewed partially. And there's a bit, I think, where they... Because I think at this point, the, the, the characters have gone to try and... Well, gone to Fibbon Valley as part of their journey narrative. Uh, you get shots of the landscape. They're in the valley. Um, and what they then start to do is discover the various creatures that live there, pterodactyls, um, other forms of um, dinosaurs... And so there's a yeah a sense of discovery, but also that the landscape has this ability. It is really open, and yet you can't see anything because it's hidden behind. And there's a valley that's, if I remember right, the Forbidden Valley is hidden within another valley. Or they look through a rock, and they're like, yeah, there's daylight, daylight the other side. So it is this really wide open space, and yet everything is hidden. And so there is a really, I think, of all the things that the the film takes and uses and uses up from the Western genre. It's you know it, yes it's the cowboys but actually it's really the landscape the landscape is really the thing that that makes that makes the fantasy or allow, or permits the fantasy to sort of breed. Yeah, and and also that idea of um, the the kind of um, struggle between civilization and not civilization. They talk about that a couple of times in the film where you know TJ says you know when when they're fighting in the forbidden valley the men are fighting with each other and she breaks it up and says stop it you know where do you think you are civilization like we've got to stick together until we get out of here you know as in we are in a yeah a wild untamed space that is uncivilized 
just because of the existence of some lizards. <laughs> so at this point, the characters have gone to figure out why there's a stop-motion animated miniature horse uh, <laughs> and ultimately have made this discovery of a series of... Um, I'm going to keep saying it. Um, a really weirdly like hairy little horse as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, uh, but I, actually, I really like your point earlier about the... the it, 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 the introduction of that miniature horse is, is how it would be in the studio. I love that idea that it's kind of... that. And, and again, we've talked about this on previous podcasts, I think the tabletop nature of stop motion, which is obviously something that you um, have experienced, you know, that sort of, uh, I don't want to say domestic space, but there's something quite intimate about stop motion as a, as a, as a medium that this film seems to retain, even though it's set in these wide open spaces. Um, so all these characters have gone to discover the space and try and understand what's going on. Then Can I just riff finally I'd love for you to riff. On, on the final element of the Western that this is also playing on, which is history and the recollection of history and the retelling of history, in that a lot of Westerns are very interested in that idea. And this is a story about um, the, the, the appeal and the danger of history, in that you've got this um, paleontologist, not archaeologist. And what, what is the di- there is a difference... In the movie, there's a line about... I, I like, don't know my friends The difference well between paleontology and archaeology is pa- paleontology goes deeper. We dig deeper. We dig deeper, that's right. There we go. Classic, easy, easy distinction. Uh, Professor Bromley is a character obsessed with the past and, and, and restoring the past and displaying the past. Yeah. And, 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 and that is his downfall, is that he, he leads them to this dangerous valley that is a valley of history, a valley of forgotten things and, and, and relics. Yeah, and the fact that history is kind of you know, very closely linked with a lot of these superstitions, you know, kind of things that have been passed down from generations, superstitions and curses and all of these things. And in that conversation with Professor Bromley, uh, Lopi says, my father used to say it's not good to dig up the past. You know, and that's just a superstition. And, and Professor, the professor says, let sleeping dogs lie. We're not going to get very far that way. And it's just that constant battle in this, in, throughout the whole film between superstition and kind of science and progress. But that's the really important value of the opening or the pre, pre-credit sequence because it establishes not necessarily the spectacle of the monster but the implications of the curse that surround it. So it's focus on the gypsy characters and, and the... Um, uh, the the woman whose name I've instantly forgotten is it Tears Arena? It is Tears Arena. I, I, I said I'd instantly <coughs> forgotten it and then read it off. So Tia Zarina is this. Um, I, I guess the, I want to say I don't want to say soothsayer, but I'm going to say soothsayer. Sort of somebody who can see into the into the future, but also has this has this relationship to the to the past. And actually, I wonder whether that's why the film the film is actually more in, the film is actually more interested in the human reaction to something like a curse or... And actually, it allows the film to set up Bromley as the antagonist, as you said, because in a lot of these monster movies, the villain is never really the monster, of course. It's the it's the person who wants to make money out of it, in the case of Bromley. Um, so actually, I quite, I quite like that. After that first sort of set piece where they are... Um, when Lopi gets picked up by the pterodactyl, the conversations, if I remember rightly, start to turn towards we can make money out of this, and it's Bromley that's, that we that we identify as this figure who is not interested in curses, not interested in history. We'll just dig it up at the yeah, we we can do that. It's fine, and actually, yeah. So it allows narratively to set him up as the the antagonist. It's never really the monster. It's the it's the P.T. Barnum figure. Well, I would I would say that the the um, issue of commerce is introduced 
very, very early on in the first act. And actually, they all talk about, you know, uh, other than Tia's arena, they all talk about how they can make money throughout the film. So TJ and Tuck and Champ and Carlos and, you know, all of the... And the professor um, and Lopi, you know, they're all interested in that. And and I think it's, yeah, kind of like this battle. I'd say, yeah, like a three-way battle between kind of superstition, science and commerce. Yeah. And, and and how how and where and why the animation is to be exploited because and this so this goes back um, I think to my point about surrogacy and how you have characters within the film those three characters the different ways that they react to the visual effects sequences so you have lines like do you see what I see um, what is it doing here what is it doing here uh, you know it's well, uh, it is about the presence of something strange or a landscape that is being made strange by the intrusion of of, of uh, fantasy um and then yeah and then we're up to the sequence that you mentioned whether or not we're in arena three i don't know but the the sequence we definitely the, are we definitely are okay uh the, the as you say the the film's signature sequence is that fair to say the yeah. sequence where so what's happening in the sequence um, um and yeah what is it i mean as an animator is what is it about that sequence or is there anything about that sequence that is sort of you know Amazing and incredible and wonderful. That sequence is unbelievable. And it, yes. it has been studied by um, animators um, from, you know, massive studios like ILM. They sat down and watched that sequence um, before they animated Jurassic Park um, because... It, so, which is, so this is the sequence where so Grant is being attacked? Where, being... Yeah, so this is a sequence where several cowboys are roping, lassoing Grangie. Uh, so Guanji's in the middle. Um, it was filmed on split screen, um, and uh, then Guanji kind of like hid the split in the final thing. Um, and it's, I mean, fantasy it's, hides fantasy. Carry on. <laughs> Carry on. It's a really, um, I mean, it's it's a really exciting scene, and it's yeah. also probably the you know perfect intersection of the genres because it's you know they're doing they're, it's like a full action scene. Um, cowboys roping a dinosaur with lasso so using the kind of weapons that they have <laughs> guns never work in this film so they always use the lassos and what it's they have they're to for have. show it's because they're, yeah. they're being they're part of the performance of the genre yeah they've got blanks in them because they're fake cowboys basically um and the western theme is playing and it's you know it's really really exciting um full of action and the um the actual you know the, obviously the way they did it well not even they just Harryhausen by himself for five months doing that, you know, four or five minute sequence um, where he had to match up the ropes, the real life ropes that were going from the cowboys to this monster stick on a Jeep. And he had to match up the ropes that were kind of wire ropes coming out of the Grangy puppet's neck. He had to match those up to the real life ropes through a tiny, tiny viewfinder in a camera. You know, it's just, it's amazing. Yeah. The movements, I think what, what impresses me the most about the film is the, the, the different movements of Guanji under various states of duress. And so you get a sense of what Guanji is suffering by virtue of how he's moving, or how it is moving, I should say, I don't mean to gender Guanji, um, how it is moving. And so there's some, I think certainly that, sequence is as you say like the 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 film that animators study is, is so is it just because the of the technicalities of everything that's kind of gone into it the fact that this is how you handle it I, mean, I guess i'm interested in what it is about that sequence that is so um 
uh, appealing or, or kind of marvellous about the craft of, of animation, think, particularly stop motion. Yeah, I think for stop motion animators, it's just, it's a seamless blend between live action and stop motion. Um, and I think that that is the thing that most people are after. I think that in many, many um, stop motion or, you know, um, creature effect films, that, you know, that, that blend is never seamless and you can always see the kind of, you know, the lighting changes or, um, you know, the edges of the scenery or, or whatever it is that, that kind of um, takes you out of the fantasy. But that is a completely believable scene and you do believe that they that those cowboys are roping a 14 foot guanji and you don't ever think about the fact that that is a kind of you know 13 inch rubber puppet i've actually i'm amazed i've, I've I'm, yeah. I'm gonna give myself a tick because i've written down most effective sequences bit where dinosaur is lassoed um and actually the bit that struck me the most was um as the creature's falling unconscious um and it's the sort of the level of detail in in his breath and the way the sort of creature is subsumed and, and falls to the ground, and they sort of pull and 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 capture him. But there's this there's this in in you know stop motion Harryhausen puppets at this era can feel a little bit sort of uh, weightless on occasion to me. Um, oh. Sometimes when they're when because they don't feel quite so integrated with the live action, and there's an element of boiling to um, to the performance. Um, whilst with this, it felt like a real creature on set. The detail of his of his breath, as I said, was quite astonishing, and 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 just it felt like there's a, it's not just it's not just a, a a puppet, it's 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 a thing with with real organs and blood and things like that. Flowing yeah. For it. Well, I yeah, I actually wanted to um, correct a comment that you two made on your Jason and the Argonauts oh, podcast. Oh, good. Um, well, well, first of all, <laughs> it's been lovely having you on the yeah, podcast. which is which is about which is about the materiality of the puppet. So you referred to the puppet in Jason and the Argonauts as plasticine. Oh, did I? Um, and, um, and I assume actually, that was me making them. And actually, about. you know, these are incredibly advanced, articulated, sophisticated puppets made from, you know, lots of different materials. He used lizard eyes uh, from taxidermis and, you know, all sorts of, um, you know, plastic teeth and uh, rubber skin that he would spend ages sculpting. Um, and... I think the result of that is exactly what you were talking about, is the, the weight, which, you know, I would say that that's why I, you know, I really love this movie and I love Harryhausen movies in, in general because the, um, you know, it's the stop motion is the only form of animation that actually has to contend with gravity. And yeah. that has a huge impact on how you view it and, and, and the weight that those creatures have. And presumably you're manipulation of those obviously your manipulation your tangible work your labor your creative labor with objects that you have to position in a way that yeah you're, you're kind of working with objects that are pro-filmic they're in front of the camera uh, and so yeah so I, I guess as an as an animator this film uh, it's it's interesting because it's a seamless film where you're as you say you don't cease to believe that these cowboys are roping a whatever for um Guanji, but at the same time, I suppose for you, you're always watching, you're always seeing the animation because you're always imagining as a practitioner how those effects would have been achieved, no matter how seamless it is. You have the kind of the, the burden of knowledge because you are trying to work out 
how to do it and maybe that's why well I don't know but presumably that's why the film and that particular sequence is such has become such a reference point for the way that animators might work with that kind of material um, material form of animation yeah and I think also the the key thing with Harryhausen and that's you know all animators say this about him is the fact that he imbued the creatures with real character with real life so there's lots of um you know there, there's a famous sequence in, in Granji where um tuck is getting water from the um river and in the and in the background Granji appears and um scratches his nose which i think is actually a king kong there's it's a it's a kong reference but um you know just that moment sets harryhausen's animation you know to like it it sets it apart from, you know, m most of the other stop motion of this era um, because it, it, you know, he thinks to give those creatures some other, you know, some secondary animation and some other characteristics that makes them kind of much more realistic and come to life. Is this something that you try and feed into? I mean, it's a bit of a broad, bit of a broad question, but obviously Harryhausen is somebody that you, that inspires you uh, as, a, as a filmmaker uh, and you, you, animation director, I find that kind of an, so you, the way that you are directing and orchestrating the different component parts of your. So is this something that you? Is Harry has on somebody that you always kind of go back to when you're kind of doing your own stuff? Yeah, I think um, our stories are really different. So the stories we choose to tell are very very different, um, and my style is very very different. Um, but I do, I really. Um, I find it very inspiring the way Harryhausen chose to work. So he worked on his own. Um, he did everything. So he made the puppets and then he animated on his own. He was kind of one take master. Um, and there's this, uh, I have a really great quote actually from him. Can I, can I read it? Of course. Um, which is about, um, the, about the way he animates, which is actually um, kind of largely improvised. That's interesting that we think of animation as this organised and meticulous, well, obviously it is an organised and meticulous craft, but the idea of improvisational animation. Yeah, so he said, it may surprise some people that although I did have some basic ideas as to what we were going to do when I was planning a sequence, their movements originated on the animation table. One pose led to another. It was all spontaneous. Um, and he said, of course, their action does depend on the background plate. If an actor recoils, you have to make the, the animal's jaws snap ahead of that action. But basically, all movements were from my imagination and how I saw the creature concerned. They were pure Ray Harryhausen. Wow. So there are, so there are two things, I think, for me that immediately jump out. One is uh, having an object or a model that he's made and then allowing that to direct how it's going to be moved. So, and, and Pixar do this very well when they cast everyday objects, lamps. You, know, you cast a lamp in a role and then you figure out how to articulate personality and, and agency and, and so forth. Um, so I love that idea that he's kind of casting his own objects, his models, and then, and then it's, the, it's the classic thing, it's the, it's the puppet leads the puppeteer, the puppet tells you how it's going to be performed. Uh, the second thing is the animation to live action. So he's, he, he has to anim or his, his movements or his movement of the objects is governed by pre-existing live action plate, which he then has to match up in the, in the sense of the ropes, as you said earlier, but also create action, counteraction, and, 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 and to make, obviously, to make those objects, um, or sorry, to make those characters feel as though they are occupying the same space. Um, but he's trying to create a conversation between them that plays out 
presumably relatively silently as well. It's all through action and movement and pose. Yeah, yeah, and I think that that's I think that's also kind of what's always drawn me to him because. You know, obviously, the, there's lots of um, stop motion feature films. Um, you know, the um, Henry Selick films and Lyco and Ardman and on and on. Um, and you know, m- nearly all of them are just very, very chatty. Um, you what, know, about their craft. No, about? just chatty films, like oh, lots ch- and lots of talking. <laughs> ah, right, chatty. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. So the the puppets are just talking all the time. So there's. Um, you know, there's less space for you to kind of imagine a character. Whereas with Harryhausen, there's no dialogue with his creatures. So there's, you know, a huge amount of space for the audience imagination to project character, you know, just reading the signs that he's put in uh, quite spontaneously. When he says one pose leads to another, it's literally, you know, the weight and the gravity of the puppet and the amount of rubber that stops the arm going a certain way, you know, that will lead on to the next pose. So, yeah, it's, it's, I, think, I just think it's really interesting that, um, that he admits almost the kind of flaws in his plan. You know, he kind of allows the puppet to have some kind of control and agency within the film. Yeah, but it seems like, sorry, I was going to say, it seems like with the, within stop motion in particular, um, perhaps more so than other animated media is that you are it's that age-old relationship between creativity and constraint you know you cast something and then figure out what it can but also what it can't do and actually what it shouldn't do beyond the realms of authenticity but actually what it it physically can't do because the arm doesn't lock in a particular way Um, so I, I think yeah stop motion obviously you're working with with objects that in the case of Guanji, the Harry Housen is working with an object that's it's not going to change its materiality. It's not going to metamorphose, and it's it's a, it's a sta- it's as stable as the Western, you know, that surrounds it. It's a stable material object that is being that has implications and or or, or certainly has an impact on the world around it. Like I, I think it's yeah, I'm 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 kind of sold on the way that he uses the, the puppets. It sounds like you're saying, Astrid, and, and sort of channeling what Harry Housen's saying here is that there is an active um, creativity or an imagine, imaginative act going on at the level of movement that's that's the fundamental appeal of this craft in that I like this about chatty characters not really having much yeah. space for your own imagination I think you actually meant in relation to the viewer when you, but I, I would wonder if that's true of the practitioner as well in that you're an animator your job is to make the creature move not stand, sit on the sofa and chat it's to make it move in some respect um, and, and I've read some of, not all, but quite a bit of Harryhausen's own writing, both written and not, and he has sort of a dual relationship with fantasy, I find, in his writing, in that when he's talking about fantasy as a genre or fantasy as a sort of mode of storytelling, he often uses it almost as a sort of, fun- he describes it quite functionally, like, I always had to make these kind of movies, it was a good platform for me to build upon all this kind of stuff. Um, almost industrially, it, it was just useful. But when he talks about the act of animation, he uses a much more sort of imaginative, creative vocabulary. And, and that's, to me, where he's most interested in fantasy, is this idea that stop motion um, is, is allows a, a really long-form, time-intensive, imaginative relationship with a model. And, and Yeah, and even before you get to the animation part of it, I think model-making, like, you know, in stop motion, pre-production is everything. And... Um, you know, when I was reading around um, Guanji and, and reading his writing on Guanji, um, he was talking a lot about um, the creation of 
dinos his dinosaurs as an act of fantasy because he would um he would take um kind of Charles Knight drawings and uh, Willis O'Brien creations um you know as well as um you know kind of uh, more scientific drawings of dinosaurs and then add onto them so kind of you know create new types of dinosaurs that would work cinematically so he got criticized um i think after one million years bc about uh, the pterodactyl wings which also appear the pterodactyls also appear in Granji, um because they should be kind of skin wings that go down to your feet and in and in this they're kind of like bat bat wings and and he says actually I do have a I do have, can I read you this quote I'd, I'd, well uh, while you I, I guess I wonder then why or wonder if that's why the scientist is always the villain because Bromley is this desire or this embodiment of a character who um, uh, represents the need to rationalize and understand fantasy through science and qualify it and and sort of make it yeah. Anatomically correct yeah, or whatever pin it, it is. Pin it to pin it one. Down. Yeah. So and that's and Harry House is kind of rebelling against that by having this the science the guy who wants it for science rather than commerce as the guy who's the who's the the villain. But yeah. sorry, go on. So he said, uh, if I had made my creatures he's talking about the pterodactyls, with skin for wings, then they would have looked improbable, even if they would have been more accurate. So I used a certain amount of cinematic license and gave them what I saw as more dramatic wings. In effect, we tried to find a compromise between strict scientific accuracy and the need to achieve certain cinematic effects, and I believe we did the right thing. It gave them a fantasy element, and after all, we weren't making pictures for paleontologists, although today's filmmakers make their creatures too real, too real for my tastes. Yeah. So there's also, so there's a balancing act that he's articulating there between making it purely scientific, as represented in the, in the paleontologist who just dig deeper um, and the other alternative which is to sort of you know have um, a relationship to the creature that is purely commercial in its focus um, so rather than allowing for creativity and imagination that fundamental act element of fantasy he describes there so is there a, you know when you have this creative relationship with your with your models with your process with the movement you create on screen the idea that these i mean these films are sold as sort of b-movie flicks to be sort of um, easily digested um you know take a date to it drive through kind of stuff that to me might speak to a frustration in that respect in that he's not churning out creature features he's lovingly crafting creature features and they can't just be sold like the like Granji has attempted to be sold in a cage to be looked at. Um, they're his babies, you know. Yeah, and 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 the animation on Granji's. So this was like the most animation of any of his films, I think. Um, and it constituted over a year of his life. I mean, that's a huge chunk of time. And when you put that much time, you know, speaking from experience, when you when you put that much of your time into something, you do really care about the output. And I think uh, Warner Brothers or Seven Arts, who were distributing it. Um, packaged it as a double bill with a biker feature and it just sank, you know, because it wasn't the audience. But that's why I think the reactions to the characters to the, to the dinosaurs are so interesting because you obviously have the desire to rationalise and m make, it, make, make it scientific and qualify it uh, in Bromley. You have uh, Tuck sort of, we can make money out of this and you should because, you know, we, we, we need to sort out the... This is what the Western genre needs. Well, we need our ranch in Wyoming well, this and is our true. Yeah, white picket fence um, and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. But, and then, but we also have Lope, and I think actually just 
his reaction is obviously, I don't want to, to pigeonhole him as a sort of, of, of childlike wonder, but if you fast forward to the end of the movie, his reaction to the death of the dinosaur is what the film is actually really interested in. So you have these different reactions to the dinosaur, both when it's active and, and at its destructive best. And then the film, so so we have that sequence where the, the, the dinosaur is, is well, then the, the film turns into King Kong, as you said when we watched Alex, where the dinosaur is finally, or the um, Allosaurus Guanji is finally captured, tied onto the back of a... Um, Very ropey-looking wooden truck. Yeah, some sort Sorry. of cart. And then driven back to um, the, the sort of cities and the cathedral, with the cathedral surrounding area, and is presented very much like um, uh, Kong in King Kong, presented for commercial purposes. But what made me laugh, and what we both laughed at, Alex, when we watched the film, was the shoddy nature with which that cage was put together and how easy, because <laughs> it seemed like that curtain was the only thing locking the door. Um, and as soon as the curtain raises, he's out of there. Um, but so, so we have, and then that's because the, the gypsy took the, took the, the, Cage lock yeah, but it was pretty. The way that that door <laughs> fell on top. Did it fall on top of Bromley? Yeah. Is that how it fell on top? Yeah. Um, so is this the final arena? So the final arena is the cathedral. Right. So all of the arenas um, kind of echo each other. Um, and there's always, you know, there's lots of foreshadowing going on. You know, the original bullfight is then echoed in the Forbidden Valley with the dinosaur fight with, you know, Carlos coming in and saving them, blah, blah, blah. And then, yeah, all of the arenas have kind of a big open space with steep sides. So in the cathedral, it's the pillars um, and the cloisters are like the caves. And they all of the arenas have very narrow entrances. So... Um, yeah, so obviously, like in the valley, uh, it's the cave, and yep. yeah, and in the cathedral, it's the doors that they kind of he pushes through, in a weird scale, as you were talking about earlier. <laughs> um, yeah, and then uh, yeah, and I, I'd say that in the final arena, you've got this kind of pretty spectacular death, you know, literally the 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 devil burning from holy flames in a, you know, <laughs> holy space. Yeah, holy space. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think it's really interesting the, the the reaction that you were talking about. You've got a long, slow pan of everybody's face outside the burning cathedral. So the cathedral is burning, Guanji's screaming, dying. The cathedral's falling in on Guanji. They're all outside watching it. This long, slow pan of their faces. You've got everybody looking pretty traumatized. And then it ends on Lopi, who is crying. And then you've got a further two or three close-ups of his crying face. And that's pretty much it. You know, and what, I don't know... So what is, why? Like, why is he crying? Is it because of the lack of... Mo so up until this point, we know the motivations for a lot of the other characters because they've been quite explicit in stating why they think it's a great idea that we should capture this this um, this animal. As you say, there's some quite um, nice visual rhymes between the announcement at the front or the start of the film um, with the rodeo and then you have the second important announcement which is made by this sort of rodeo ringleader master of ceremonies um, where we have the reveal of Guanji and we have this framing of animation as entertainment then we have quote unquote Guanji's loose and then as you say we move into this final arena but is Lopi not the only character where we're not entirely sure what his are we are we ever kind of privy to what his views on the because he he is captured at one point by the pterodactyl and lifted up but there's no sort of his to dwell on his reaction at the end I think is is really significant but I can't quite same with you Astrid, I can't quite grasp why what is it about his his vision on 
Yeah, he. I mean, he is a wise child, and he does kind of offer counsel to Tuck, you know, several places throughout the film, and to TJ. And he does say to Tuck uh, in the first act, um, if you help somebody you love, you help yourself. And so I think that there is... You know, and he's an orphan and he's, you know, looking for to connect and looking to kind of make it, basically. Um, and it's interesting, he's crying, you know, is he crying because the adventure is over and he doesn't know what the next stage is? Or is he crying because the cathedral is burning down? There's a lot of interesting stuff going on there about, you know, kind of the the existence of dinosaurs proving the you know that creationism is a myth and you know and and that it's lit the dinosaur is literally burning the church down yeah and you know or, or the church is literally burning the dinosaur down it was religion what killed the beast yeah well, well <laughs> i certainly thought like that i thought he was crying because he's a child watching an animal like be murdered in front of him and it, it did you know in a in a less frivolous way um, it did remind me of the ending of King Kong, but rather than getting that emphatic coda of this is what this was about, it's it's it makes you contemplate uh, what uh, that's all about. But I, to me, it's it's a, a, a child is watching an animal get murdered in front of him um, for no particular rhyme or reason other than greed, pride, avarice, all the stuff that you know the film seems to be against yeah but you ref- but you reflect I, th- I think it does make you reflect on that and i think that's really interesting i think also this was the era of downbeat endings you know planet of the apes had just come out and i think it's i think it's interesting that they just felt that it was totally fine to leave it on this sort of downbeat you know kind of traumatic note um without any kind of celebration yeah, except then you got this sort of they get the the credit sequence, which is like the ending of a sort of nineteen seventies British sitcom where you get all the characters coming back for like a smile at the camera. Yeah, it's an odd it's an odd ending. It just sort of stops, doesn't it? But uh, yeah, I think you've made me appreciate actually the the rich potential for the viewer by it just stopping because it actually makes you think a little bit more about the thematic substance. Well, I think we've talked previously, obviously, about fantasy and its relationship to allegory and political allegory, and often. Um, monsters are symbols or ciphers for other things. Are we going to stretch this first of the late sixties? Well, no, I, I, I'm wondering whether one, whether that, whether the film offers any kind of invitation to read it in that way. I'd have to do a bit more reading around the late sixties, seventies. Given that I'm not a lapsed there, historian, I guess the title has a certain ambiguity you can play with there, isn't it? In that maybe I've just occurred. This has been occurring to you too for the entire podcast, but it's obviously the Valley of Guanji is both a space. It's Goat of Guanji, the Valley of Guanji, and it is the Valley of Guanji, the monster who has come from Guanji. And, and if you take the Valley of Guanji to mean a space, then it's a sort of forbidden place we must not go to. Um, it's an othering, it's a over there, we're over here, civilization versus um, isolation, all this kind of stuff. If you make it the Valley of Guanji, the monster, then actually it's more about sort of, um, I don't know, the tragedy of the death of Guanji. Much than say the death of King Kong or the death of other sort of heroic monsters like that. Yeah, well, I think he's referred to as the master by Tia Zarina, isn't he? So he's he's referred to as the, you know the kind of the master of that valley, um, and pretty much as soon as he leaves that valley, you know, the moment that he cro- crosses over the threshold into the kind of real world, um, he gets knocked out by rocks, and it's you know the beginning of the end for him. And yeah, it's like he. I don't know. Yeah, I think he like he commands that space and then outside of that, you know, he can't survive, which again mirrors the 
you know, the kind of creation of the film. Like, it's that thing of, like, you know, Harryhausen, like, making, you know, continuing to make these kind of uh, 50s-style monster movies um, in, a, in, in an era that just wasn't, you know, wasn't prepared to accept them anymore. But there is, well, there, and there is a nice parallel between... Um, Guanchi being knocked by the rocks, the rock fall in the landscape. So the landscape both protects and hides uh, it, but it also can cause it to be incapacitated. And then that is then rhymed later on when the cathedral starts to fall and crumble down and, and Guanchi gets knocked. And actually, I think that's so that's the last I put visual effects as the cathedral crumbles. You have sort of what looked like, I mean, I'd love to know how that was done because originally I thought it was just simply back projection and the fire was just kind of behind if you like but then the cathedral does start to crumble and you see it and so it seems to be this kind of combination of a back projection of fire effects with a model so it could be three layers fire miniature model of the cathedral and then the crowd looking on so it's quite even that it's a kind of complex it's not one of the most spectacular sequences in lots of ways but it's ornate and organized and and has these multiple planes of action yeah it was um it's a double print it's a where you know when the film goes through the camera twice that's for the for the fire sequence and the exterior I think was um, the bottom half was live action filmed and then the top half was model and then they were comped together. Amazing. We're in danger of creating a podcast that's longer than the film is we're talking about. So I hate to be the person that that that, that uh, takes us back out the valley, but we should probably start to wrap up. Um, I, do we I have might, any final thoughts or questions? Yeah, or? well, my fi- my final thought I guess goes back to what Astrid said earlier about the film being influential to her as a practitioner and ultimately the film is when we were watching it we could see more recent versions of those kinds of movies within it so King Kong, um, Jurassic Park there's very sort of similar parallels but it seems like the film itself for a, I, I, I don't know it, I, I don't know whether it would be fair to say that the film is one of um, Harry House's less well known ones certainly I wasn't aware of it as much as I was in some other movies but it seems to be very very influential reading about it reading around it from what you said as well it is influential both from an industry perspective um, and also for audiences that are able to see certain sequences in it that would go on to appear in, in films like Jurassic Park and, and things like that so that seems to be what I'm getting from the film that it's actually really important for the way that um, the trajectory of monster movies, which ultimately, I guess, what were they, were, they were waning and then returned again later on? You know. Yeah, I think they always they always come back, um, and I think that yeah, the the um, you know the the people that grew up with the Harryhausen films, you know, Joe Dante and Peter Jackson and Spielberg and Lucas, you know, they've obviously all gone on to continue his legacy, and all of you know all monster movies all refer to each other. And there's a direct line between, you know, King Kong to Guanji to Jurassic Park. Um, and yeah, I, don't, I mean, I think that it's, I think that, um, in fact, I was watching Jurassic Park the other day and when Dr. Malcolm drives through the gates um, at the beginning, they're huge gates that look exactly like the, gates in King Kong and he says what have you got in here King Kong you yeah. know and it's and and the fact that that the, the um, scene where uh, where you first see Guanji where, where the, you're following a smaller dinosaur running running off through the valley and then Guanji appears and grabs that dinosaur in his mouth that that shot was directly referenced in Jurassic Park um, when the T-Rex appears 
Yeah. Well, I love the and I love the idea that a figure like Bromley could be the prototype figure. It's not you know the, the the famous line from Jurassic Park, spending so long figuring out whether they could do it. They thought about whether they should, and and it seems like he is the embodiment of that kind of figure. That sort of warped scientist figure who wants to do things for the sense of discovery when actually we should leave leave the past and the landscape and its tibula and fibulas tibias I couldn't leave. also help see a bit of short round in Lope in the relationship between Lope and Tuck but that might just be what is short round from uh, Temple Indiana of Doom. Jones yeah Temple oh, of Doom. you're talking to somebody another podcast another time another yeah. argument off there um, but for now we'll, we'll keep we'll keep um We'll keep we'll keep a, a good a brave face for the for the sake of the family um, on it. Uh, so um, that's Guanji. Uh, we visited the valley and climbed out. Um, in terms of lasting legacy on your work, is there a, is a little anecdote you can tell listeners about sort of a moment we thought, oh, I should do it like Harryhausen did, or is there a... Or is a bit we've done it like Harryhausen? Yeah, well, done, yeah. <laughs> well um, maybe not from Guanji, because it's not the first one I saw, but um, I remember when I saw... Um, the seventh voyage of Sinbad. Um, I really, really loved the Cyclops and the way he walks. And when I saw Harryhausen talk, he was saying that um, he didn't know um, what to do with his arms, with the Cyclops' arms. Um, so he kind of raised them into this sort of um, almost like a T-Rex position, um, you know, basically so that he didn't have to contend with one arm swinging back as the leg moves forward, you know, that whole kind of um, traditional human movement to make him a kind of other. And I think that's had a huge impact on the way that I animate my creatures because I love that kind of T-Rex arm position um, and it d it does just allow you to kind of remove yourself from that slavish uh, kind of adherence to replicating human movement which modern stop motion is obsessed with um, so yeah I just I, I think just his motion and his character is has had a lasting impact. And obviously, well, I'm looking at your because normally we ask we ask guests about where we can find you, and and I have found you online. Um, so, and you've got a little line on your um, on your mockduck.co.uk website about uh, Red Rover, which is uh, a colonial monster movie. Yes. <laughs> so I mean, so this seems like a, a you know we are we are both looking back at Harry Harryhausen and monster movies and looking forward in your own way. So is there? Maybe tell us um, what Red Rover is about. Well, it's a um, it's set on Mars, um, and it's about the uh, human invasion of Mars, basically. Um, so the um, it's a short film, and the it, the humans send a robotic exploratory rover to Mars to search for signs of life, and it accidentally disrupts and destroys the native rock beast life on the planet. Interesting. So uh, in terms of where people can find you, obviously you have your, your website, mockdoc.co.uk, as I said. Um, where else can people um, hunt you down in the social media sense? Uh, well, you can find me on both Twitter and Instagram, and it's at mockduckstudios. And I promise that if you contact me, I won't bore you for an hour and a half about Ray Harryhausen. Well, that's disappointing. That's, yeah, that's well, exactly what I'm contacting I was. you then. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, no. no. Um, um, please do. Um, well, I guess we should leave it there. Rastid, thank you very much for, for joining us and, and, and giving up um, an hour of your afternoon to talk all things Ray Harryhausen. Thanks for having me. Um, what a wonderful way to talk about Grandia. I'm not I know. sure we would have ever um, no, I know. unpacked it the way um, you helped us do there. So, so thanks so much for that. Um, 
This has been Fantasy Animation for another week. Uh, you can find us at fantasy-animation.org or on Twitter at fananimresearch, F-A-N-A-N-I-M research, as well as on Facebook. Um, by now, maybe on Instagram, but... Depending on when this goes out. If we're it, everywhere. This, we'll two things will happen at this point. Either that will be true and you can find it, or it won't be true and it'll be Chris's fault. Yeah. Or, so the could, goal or, you, or a third thing, you could cut it out and no one will ever know. Oh, that won't be happening. So, thank you very much for listening. Um, go enjoy a Guanji, and we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.